turn together to Isaiah 53. We've been moving through this slowly over the last few weeks as a part of our journey through Lent together. And now heading into the last week of Lent, we come to the end or near the end of this chapter. And originally my plan was to do verses 10, 11, and 12 tonight. And uh, but we're going to just basically take what was going to be tonight and break it into two parts. Uh, so we'll finish this next week for Easter Sunday. Um, I'm not going to recap everything that we talked about because we'll be here for a while. But I am going to just read. And uh, so maybe as we read, maybe um, hopefully the Lord will just bring to mind maybe some of the things we've discussed. Uh, or it's kind of been a one-way discussion, but you know what I mean. Some of the things that we've covered uh, here on Sundays together. So let's, uh, let's look at verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand." Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. So this chapter uh, was written hundreds of years before this, these events happened. This is, uh, there's all kind of, of things that are in this chapter that um, 
were details uh, that people held on to and memorized and waited for and looked looked to. And then when Jesus came on the scene, these were just steady confirmations that he was the one that God had sent. Um, And what I want to do together tonight is I want to go back and forth between some of these verses and the fifth chapter of Romans. And so if you want to go ahead and and turn there and maybe maybe just kind of hold your place somehow or or whatever. We're going to just flip back and forth a little bit. Because what we're going to see is um, we have this really unique perspective because we have Isaiah 53 that happened before Christ. We have all of the... Um, the accounts of what actually happened to him. And then we have uh, the Apostle Paul writing and, and helping us process it together. And so we have this, this really great place in history to have a Bible in front of us that allows us to take multiple uh, angles on the same events that have gone on as a, as a way of helping us understand more deeply you know, what all has, has happened. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to kind of pick and choose a little bit uh, coming out of verses 10 and 11 in, in Isaiah 53. Uh, in the beginning of verse 10, it has one of the, it's a really difficult verse. Um, it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So it's been talking about the innocence of Jesus and how although there was no, um, he had done no wrong, there was no deceit in his mouth, there were no, he had never sinned, he was perfect. Um, all these things that had gone on, and, and he, he voluntarily stepped in as a substitute. But this verse says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And sometimes, you know, when you see the word Lord written in all caps like that, uh, that is uh, the Hebrew word Yahweh. And there's all kinds of... Um, we're, we're just very careful to write Yahweh, to speak it. Um, if you ever, if you're ever on a website, or if you're ever reading in a book or anything where they are, um, where there's an Orthodox Jewish perspective on there, they won't type all four letters. They won't uh, Y H W H. They won't put them all there sometimes, and and so it's just this is a whole thing. But when you see it all all in caps, that is like God's name, which is Yahweh in the Old Testament, and they just they didn't want to type it. You know, they didn't want to. They didn't want that to be on the page because it's holy and sacred and you have to be careful with it. And so whenever you see it in all caps, so that's what it means. And so this is saying it was the will of Yahweh to crush Jesus. That Yahweh has put him to grief. And I want us to, to just kind of sit in that for a few minutes because uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about, over the last couple of Sundays, our sin and how that led to uh, the need for a Redeemer. And we've talked about Jesus and His role, Him stepping in as a substitute for us, and um, been trying to really just be very open to the Lord uh, breaking us over sin, especially continued patterns of sin and those kinds of things. Um, that sin isn't something we just kind of brush off or take take lightly, that, that we don't ever want to leave a place where, where we... We fail to be broken over those things and, and understand the sacrifice that was made for us and for the glory of the Father. And so we've talked about our role uh, in, like, in basically creating a scenario that required the crucifixion. And so as we head toward Good Friday, um, 
we, we have to own that, you know, that this happened because of us. Uh, we talked about, so we talked about our role. We talked about Jesus' role and him voluntarily leaving heaven and coming to earth and being our uh, substitutionary perfect lamb of sacrifice that would pay the penalty that we could not pay. We haven't really talked about the role of the Spirit or the role of the Father a whole lot. And a verse like this gives us uh, just a really humbling, kind of sobering understanding of the fact that the Father, Son, and Spirit were all involved in Good Friday. And so, so just kind of back up a little bit. So God is, there's one God. This God exists in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Uh, they are all fully, equally God, each of them. Okay, so it's not like uh, the Father is varsity and Jesus is JV and the Spirit's like on the freshman team, you know, that kind of thing. None of that. They're all fully, equally God. But there's a distinction in their roles. Uh, they, they each... Um, they have, there's a uniqueness to their personalities and, and those, those kinds of things. But these three persons of the Godhead form one God. And so theologians have, have talked about, they've labeled this the Trinity. And the thing about the Trinity is, I think we understand it, just as general Christians, I think we understand it more than we think we do. But we don't understand it as much as we want to. You know? Like we're... I think we need to give ourselves a little more credit, but at the same time understand that it's just mysterious how God can be one but three. But three but one. All equal, and all that kind of stuff. So, so God, but, but God is, um, he exists in, the, in these persons, and God has, like he thinks, and he feels, and he has a will, and uh, man was created in his image. And so man being, so when God made Adam, uh, he made Adam in his own image. And so Adam uh, thinks and feels and has a will like God does. And then when God looked at Adam and said it's not good for him to be alone, so he made him a helpmate. Eve was also made in the image of God. So it means that Eve also thinks and feels and has a will. And so God is a community, okay? The God, Father, Son, Spirit are a community. We were created in His image to live in community with other people. We were relational. Um, and so that is, the, that is very important just that we kind of have this understanding that um, when God made us, being made in His image, um, because He is love and love always has an element of choice, He made Adam and made Eve and gave them the ability to choose him or to not choose him. And you and I were born, you know, a little bit after them, but we come in the same kind of way. We have this, we have feelings and we have thoughts and we have opinions and we have a will and we are able to choose to love him or not love him. So Adam and Eve were in, in that same kind of situation because God didn't, if God was a robot and he made them in his image, then they would be robots too, who don't have feelings or opinions or whatever. But God's not a robot. God is a community. He's a community centered on love. And so he created people who, are, who live in community and are centered in love. And love has choice. And Adam and Eve chose themselves over God. So God made everything and it was great. It was perfect. 
Adam and Eve, they messed it all up. And Jesus comes to fix it. You know, when, anytime I'm asked to sum up what, what does the Bible teach, I think those are the three big, big parts of it right there. And so, uh, with, with that all, all being said, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So God made everything and it was good. Adam and Eve chose themselves. They chose their own path. They, um, in not so many words, but in summation, they, they, they told God, we know better than you do what's good for us, and so we're going to choose our own way. And so God put them outside of the garden in this beautiful act of grace because, well, they should have died on the spot because that's what holiness does. So holiness uh, deals with sin just the same way that light deals with darkness. It's just this natural, like you, there can't be impurity in the presence, uh, like it can't exist in the presence of the pure and perfect holy God. And so they should have died right away. But God put them outside of the garden and he made some clothes for them. He took care of them. And the Father, Son, Spirit, had a, they had a plan for how to deal with this. Now they weren't surprised by it. So it's not like Adam and Eve sinned and they're like, hey, we got to go all time out and have a family meeting over here and whatever. They knew this was all going on. But they had a plan for it. They had a plan with how to deal with the fact that um, Adam and Eve made the wrong choice. They chose themselves, and then from then they had kids, and they had kids, and they had kids, and then you and I are here, and we are in the same situation. And so the Father, Son, Spirit had a plan. We've been talking about Jesus' role in the plan. We talked about our role in the plan, but what about the Father and what about the Spirit? At some point, there had to be, um, like, like I, well, I just want to create a scenario where there's this imaginary dialogue between the three, okay? Uh, so this isn't in the Bible and whatever, and so just oh, be okay with that. Um, at some point, there had, there had to be this conversation, and we look at this verse, I think it, it maybe went something like this. The Father, the Father is the, he's the orchestrator, right? He's the planner, he's the visionary. Uh, Jesus is the one who, um, so like you go to creation, the Father dreams up uh, the Swiss Alps. Jesus goes and makes the Swiss Alps. The Spirit sustains God's presence in the Swiss Alps. Okay, they each kind of have a role. So in salvation, the Father orchestrates a plan, and here's some, something what the plan looked like. He says, okay, son, you're going to leave heaven. You're going to be born just like all of our like everyone created in our image is born, you're going to be born too. Um, and you're going to grow up and you're going to, I mean, you're going to be 100% human and still 100% God, but you're not going to access your divinity. You're not going to, you're going to humble that side of yourself and you're going to grow up and you're going to be flesh and bone just like them. You're going to grow up among them. You're going to, you're going to see what it's like. You're going to see how difficult it is to live there. You're going to see the impact of sin. You're going to feel the impact of sin. Um, you're going to, you're going to never mess up. You're never going to choose your own, your own path or a worldly way or a fleshly way. You're always going to be obedient to me. Um, you're going to live this life. When you get to be about 30, your public ministry is going to begin. You're going to be teaching and preaching and working miracles, and I'll guide you all along the way. And then when the time is right, you're going to set your face toward Jerusalem, and uh, you're going to ride in on a donkey, and they're going to go crazy. All right, they're just going to lose their minds, and um, but you're not going to lose yours. And you're going to go about that week, and some stuff's going to happen, and then um, you're going to get 
betrayed by your closest friends. You're going to get arrested, tried, wrongly convicted, um, but you're not going to say a word. And they're going to beat you within an inch of your life. And through that beating, I'm going to transfer the sins of, of everybody to you. I'm going to place it on you. And so even though you're perfect and innocent, you're going to feel the, the grief and the weight of that sin. And you're going you're to feel the physical pain, but you're going to feel the emotional pain. I mean, you're going you're gonna to bear it all. Because they can't do it, but you can do it. So you're going to do that. You're going to take that upon yourself. They're going to make you carry your cross. It's going to be this whole thing. They're going to make movies about it. It's going to be great. Uh, you're going to carry it down. They're going to crucify you. You're going to suffocate and die about as painful of a slow, just agonizing death as possible. And I'm just going to keep dealing with all those sins. And all this, my holiness is going to respond and that wrath is going to come and you're going to take it. And you're going to take it because the Spirit's going to empower you. Um, and you're going to take it and take it and take it. And there's going to come a point where there's nothing left to give, and you're going to die. And then it'll be, it'll be finished. And I want you to say it's finished, because I want people to hear you say it. And I want them to write it down, because they're all going to need to know those words later on. And, and it's really going to be done. And then three days later, I'm going to raise you from the dead, and there's some stuff that's going to happen, and it's going to, it's going to be incredible. And the Spirit's going to bring you back to life. And he goes on and gives some more details. And, and maybe he looked at the Spirit and was like, here's what you're going to do. You're going to, you're going to empower the Son at every step. There's things I'm going to want him to know, and you're going to communicate that to him. He's going to depend on you. You're going to be a source of strength and power and uh, you're going to guide him. You're going to sustain him. You're going to apply the sins of the people to him. You're going to apply righteousness back to the people, and you're going to do. The, you're going to handle the mechanics of all how all that's working. So, son, that's what you're going to do, and spirit, that's what you're going to do. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to crush you. I'm going to. I'm going to pour out every drop of wrath. For every stupid sin that every one of our children has committed, the ones they did on purpose, the ones where they didn't know any better, the whatever, every single one of them, I'm just going to obliterate you. I'm going to give you everything I've got until every penny has been paid. Every bit of the debt is going to be covered. I'm going to destroy my own child. Maybe he looked at Jesus, maybe he said, are you in? Jesus was like, I'm in. Maybe he looked at the Spirit and said, are you in? The Spirit was like, heck yeah, I'm in. And he was like, okay, I'm in too. A verse like this that says, yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. Yahweh has put him to grief. It says that the entire Trinity got together and had a plan to redeem and rescue me. And you. And all of us. That has to be sobering for us. And we have to be mature enough to sit in that and to think about that. And to let the Lord love us with that thought. Was it Jesus? Yes. 
Was it the Spirit? Yes. Was it the Father? Yes. Was it difficult for Jesus to be your substitute? And although he had no sin and knew no sin, he became sin for you? Yes. Was it difficult for the Spirit to have to listen to the Father and just apply all of our sins to him? Yes. Was it difficult for the Father to crush his own son? Yes. Good Friday is not a good Friday. Good Friday is a bad Friday. It's been said many times. And I think the longer we walk with the Lord, the more, the more that should start to make sense. You'd be like, yeah, it was, it was a terrible Friday. It was bad. Sunday is awesome. Friday's bad. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And we went to Romans 5. And I want to look at verse 6. Because you know, it's... I think it's somewhat easy... It's maybe somewhat easy for us to think about that if we're if we're dialed into the what would a parent do for their child kind of perspective, you know. There's no doubt in my mind that that you guys who are parents that you would that you would trade your life if given the opportunity. Like if if you were put in that position and you had the the chance it was you or your kid, you would you would give up your life. I think I'm, there's no doubt. And so if we're only looking at it from that perspective of like, well, God, like we're God's children and we're under this curse. And so, of course, he would lay down his life for us. And the Bible does talk in those terms. The Bible also talks in other terms that we have to keep in mind as well. Uh, we're described as being alienated from God and being hostile toward God. Uh, if you look at Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Okay, or maybe even think of it like this: like, like maybe you wouldn't die for anybody, but you definitely die for your kid. You know, you you die. There are some people you would die for. It may not be a super long list, but there's probably somebody there. Verse eight. But God shows His love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, oh, wait, enemies? See, you, maybe you would, would give your life for your child while they're like sweet and lovely and whatever, but what if your child grows up to literally be your enemy? That's kind of the situation that we're dealing with. So, um, and I know everybody here is not parents. I'm not a parent. So I, I know like for some it's easier to make this leap than others. But let's just, let's just go there in our minds. I think, I think it makes sense parent to child. Okay? It doesn't make sense just normal person to their enemy. All right? So what if the two, those two things were actually the same thing? What if your child had become your enemy? To think about the pain and the difficulty that that must stir up in you, you know? And some of you, I can probably re- relate to that a little bit and at a family level where you have 
Um, maybe it's not your child, but maybe it's people you're related to or just best friends or someone that you, I mean, you love them deeply and they have become enemies to you for whatever reason. It's a combination of terrible pain. And so that's what's going on here. Is that we weren't just children, we were rebellious children, hostile toward God as our Father, enemies of Him because of our sin. We looked at Him and said, I know better than you. I don't think you know what you're talking about. Get away from me. I don't want anything to do with you. That's what sin does. And so look back, look again at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Paul's trying to help us to see it this way. It's like it's one thing to die for someone you love. It's very different to die for your enemy. And we were enemies. We were beloved enemies, but we were still enemies. And so if, if we have this exalted view of ourselves, where we were just these little angels who kind of lost their way, it's like, no, we were... It was much more sinister than that, whether it feels that way or not. And I think that this is where a lot of our problems tend to come from, is that we don't think we were really that bad. Maybe some of you do, and I remember growing up, and uh, I go to, we go to camps, or go to, I have people come speak at church and give testimonies, and you'd have these folks who would get up there, and they would tell their life story, and I mean, they, you'd have people who, um, the, the list of people, Crimes they had committed and things that they had done, whatever, super, super long, and um, and they were and, and Jesus had saved them and they loved him so much and they were just so in love with him and it was easy to understand that. But for me, I'm sitting there. I, I grew up a Southern Baptist kid and I never really got into trouble and I didn't really do a whole lot of you know like bad stuff necessarily. And it was there were times when I would find myself. This is going to sound weird, but like wishing that my testimony was more interesting than it was, you know. Wishing I had some sort of like radical story, you know, that would just have people weeping, you know, or whatever. And that's dumb, but that's kind of where I found myself sometimes. And thinking that like, oh, certain people are worse sinners than me, and I'm not that bad, and whatever. There's this this story, and you can just write down this reference if you want. It's in Luke chapter 7, at the end of the chapter, and uh, Jesus is having dinner with, with some folks, and a woman comes in, and she begins to uh, wash his feet with perfume, and she's weeping, and then she realizes she's weeping probably, and she's like wiping her tears off with her hair, and she's worshiping him, and uh, she was someone who had a reputation in the town of being a sinner, and so everybody at the table is like scoffing, like, oh, I can't believe, you know, whatever. And so Jesus, who's just the, he's the best, like, just, he'll just roll you up. Like, he's just brilliant at what he would do in his responses. It was just amazing. Um, and so he has this dialogue with everybody. He makes this statement, uh, and he, he says, um, he's talking about her, and he's, he's like, he basically says, like, she, she understands forgiveness. And he says this, he says, He who is forgiven little, loves little. He who is forgiven little, loves little. Now, at first glance, that makes it sound like, well, she did a bunch of bad stuff. So her love is deeper because she's been forgiven of like a list of like 742 sins, you know. But that's not really what he's saying. She understands the depths 
of her sin, and therefore the depths of forgiveness that Jesus offers. And she is responding in worship to him. And when Jesus says, "He who forgives, uh, who's for, let me make sure I don't, he who is forgiven little loves little," he's not talking about how long the list is. He's talking about how much you realize. Saying, how much, how, how, do you realize how deep sin is? All of it. Not compared to other people, all of it. So he's really telling this room, he's like, I don't have to convince her that she's a sinner. She knows. You guys, you think you're not that bad. And your love for God is, is like consistent with how much you think you've been forgiven of. And if you had a clue... The depths to which sin will drag you, then your love would be deep as well. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. If you want to look at a culture and figure out, well, what what crimes do they are they really against? Look at look at look at the penalty, right? You will not be put to death for a parking ticket, and you won't pay. You know, a $50 fine for murdering someone. They connect to each other. The more serious the crime, the more serious the penalty. So if, if the penalty for sin is death, but not your death, the Son of God's death, then how, how serious do you think sin is? You know, I have to think about it in those terms. What does that tell me about the violation of sin? That the death of God is the only thing that would pay the price. So we can compare ourselves and think we aren't that bad or think we're worse and this and this and this. We can do that all we want. At the end of the day, he who is forgiven little, he who has little understanding and recognition of how deep forgiveness is and how, um, how the depths that sin has dragged us to, when you have a little understanding of that, you have a little bit of love for Jesus. And the more deeply we dive into that, the more deeply our love for him grows. So, back to 53. Verse 10. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Many to be accounted righteous. So what does that even, what does that even mean? If you go back to Romans... Chapter 5, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience... The many were made sinners. Okay, that would be Adam. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That's Jesus. Think about that for a second. 
Through one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. One man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Verse 20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to be accounted righteous? It's the will of the Lord to crush him and put him to death. God put together this, this plan for us. And the plan involves this exchange. And I was thinking, thinking through this, and I want to just, just close by painting like a, kind of a picture, not a literal picture because it would be terrible, uh, but like a word picture of sorts. Um, and it may not make any sense, but I think in order to understand being accounted righteous, I, I, this is going to help us, to help us realize that we have been forgiven much, regardless of whatever list of sins you may come up with. We've all been forgiven much. Um, so imagine that there are that there, everybody in the world, all right, lives in this big box, and there's no light in this box at all, like z- literally zero light. And you're born into this box, and uh, you you have the ability to see, but there's no light, so you can't see, you know. In this box, you're, you, everyone's kind of just fumbling around all the time. And you learn, you learn to live in that, in that setting. So you're kind of born into a family, and so like, there are people around you, and you kind of learn to help each other and whatever. And somehow you still eat, and somehow you still function. But, but the thing is, because you can't see anything that's going on, you have severe trust issues. Like, you kind of trust the people that you're, the family maybe you were born into a little bit because they're right there, but maybe you don't even trust them. Um, because everybody's having to fend for themselves. And so food is scarce, and you're, so if you find food, you kind of hoard that a little bit. And um, you sort of help each other out, but if you help someone else, then, then that's kind of cutting, cutting you out a little bit. And um, so you have these major trust issues, and you, you develop this this general fear of what might happen, fear that people are going to take your stuff. And so the, the overall mindset that, that kind of just forms and you're born into is that you just look out for yourself. Maybe the people around you a little bit, but at the end of the day, um, if you get lost somewhere or whatever, it's you against the world. And so you just become very self-centered and it's just about you. Uh, maybe there are times when you, you, maybe you find food somewhere and you don't cry out, hey, whose is this? Is this anybody? You just kind of take it to yourself because it's just about you and looking out for you. And this is how you grow up for a long, long time. And, um, so let's say that you, you get to be an adult. Let's say you're uh, the wise old age of 23. and uh, You're 23 and one day, for some reason, you start to, you start to be able to make out some, some f- like forms in the box, you know. You see things moving around. And so sounds you've heard your whole life, now you're able to see like things kind of whatever. And um, You kind of think you're crazy at first, like your eyes are playing tricks on you, but it turns out that somehow there's light in the box for the first time. And it's very, very faint, but you can see, and then you realize like, oh, those sound, that's, that's a person, those are people, and those are whatever. And um, people are moving around, and the light, it's really, really faint, but then, then it's, it gets a little gets a little bit brighter and a little bit brighter, and you realize 
that they're, like, people start talking. Where's this coming from? Where's this coming from? And whatever. And um, So you start trying to go toward it a little bit. And when, as you get closer and you start to hear people talking, you realize that the source of light is there's, there's this man who's there. And he's got this coat on, this white coat. And from this white coat, it emits this light and whatever. And so it was faint because he was far away, but now he's getting closer. It's starting to light up a little bit more, and your eyes are starting to adjust, and you're starting to, to like make sense of some things. And, and, and so you start with other people trying to get close to him, trying to get close to him, and you're figuring out what's going on. And as you get closer and the light gets brighter, you, you realize that the coat that you've been wearing your whole life is black. You're like, oh, okay, well, I have a black coat on. That guy has a white coat on. His, his coat's lighting up everything, and my coat's just been in darkness the whole time. You're like, that's, that's interesting. And you realize that everybody else around you, they also have black coats on, and, and everybody's dirty. You're like, man, I'm a lot dirtier than I thought I would be, you know? That's interesting. So everybody's talking, everybody's talking, or whatever, and the closer you get to him, the more, the more you realize, like, everybody's filthy, and I'm filthy. And she, you start begin to wonder, like, who is this guy? Why does he have a white coat? Um, why is my coat so dirty? Can I get a white coat? Because that looks pretty awesome. And so you kind of fight your way, and you realize that there are some people who are drawn closer to him, but a lot of people are going the other way. You know? And you're like, hey, what's wrong? What's wrong? Did he, is he leaving? You're like, no, no, no. I, just, I, hate, I hate the way the, my coat looks, you know? And you realize, like, oh, the light it exposes how they look, and they don't like it, so they're going the other way, you know? They're going back into the darkness, because over there you can just kind of hide and be who you thought you were. And so, for you, that's just not, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm, that's not enough for me, i got too many questions. And so, you finally get to him, and you're having this conversation, and even though there's always people around, it's almost like it's just, just the two of you. And so you're like, hey, who are you? He's like, I'm Jesus, okay, Hope, hope maybe you saw that coming. Uh, it's like, I'm Jesus. And uh, I'm like, all right. Says, Why are you here? And Jesus says, well, I've, I've come to bring a message to everyone. And, uh, you know, I just got some, some things to say. Maybe, you, maybe you'd like to hear it. And, and you're like, all right, yeah, in a second. Um, how'd you get that coat? Why, why is your coat white and all of ours are black? And Jesus says, well, um, I have a white coat because I have never sinned. I've never chosen my own way. I've, I've never rebelled against God. I've never told him that I know better. Um, my coat is white and because I am righteous. And you're like, what's that mean? He says, well, righteousness is when your, your actions and your behavior and your motive, everything is consistent with the holiness of God. Okay. So you say, so why is my coat black? He says, well, your coat is black because you have sinned. You have chosen your own way. You have decided that you know better than God. Um, and so you have a black coat. And that's why everybody here has a black coat. And all the people with the black coats all live in the, the dark box. And that's just how it is. So you say, okay, so what, why are you here? And Jesus says, he says, well, very simply, I'm just here to come and tell you, uh, tell you the truth. Um, one thing I'm here to do is to help you see that your coat is black because you didn't know it until the light came. And you're like, oh, okay, that's fair. So you need to know that the coat is black. 
You need to know that you weren't made to live with a black coat. You are made to live with a white coat. Because of sin, you have a black coat. And because you have a black coat, the holiness of God is going gonna, is gonna to put you to death. And so for now, the, the lights are off. But one day, the Father's going to flip on all the lights. And His holiness is going to just fill this place. And everyone with a black coat is going to be put to death. You're like, all these people put to death. So yeah, all these people put to death. Because that's what holiness does. Like light to darkness, holiness deals with sin. So I've come to, to tell you that. That your coat is black. You weren't made to live with a black coat. One day God's going to flip the lights on and you'll all be destroyed. And so your response is, you're the worst messenger ever, you know. He says, but I'm not done. I'm not done. Um, do you have any other questions? And so you ask the obvious question, what do I have to do to get a white coat? Because I don't want a black coat anymore. How can, how can I earn, like what can I do? How can I pay for it? How can, what can I do to get a white coat? And Jesus says, well, this white coat, this, this righteousness that I'm wearing is not something that you earn. You, you earned the black coat, but you can't earn the white coat. Uh, you're like, okay. He says, and that's what I've come to tell you. That's what I've come to offer you. The Father has sent me to, to give you a white coat in exchange for your black coat. Like, All right. So what I had to do, just swap? And he's like, well, it's more than just a, like a swap. Um, when, if you let me take the black coat off, the coat represents more than just your guilt or innocence. It's, it's everything about you. It's, it's how you've grown up here, only tending, only like fighting for yourself, only looking out for yourself. It's the way you think. It's, it's the way you deal with money. It's the way you deal with other people. It's, the way, it's everything about you. You're shedding that. You're letting me take everything that sin has done to you, and you're letting me put my coat on you. And so there's this exchange that's going to happen. And yeah, it's an exchange of coats, but it's, it's deeper than that. And so what you have to do is you have to deny yourself and uh, walk in obedience no matter what the cost. And uh, I'll take the black coat on myself. And then what will happen is the rest of your life, you'll still live in this box and you'll walk around, and, but you'll have this white coat on and the same thing that will ha- happen with me will happen with you is people will come up and they'll ask you questions. And when they do, you and I will talk to them about it. And some of them are going to want nothing to do with you because you're going to make them feel bad about themselves. But it's not you, it's the coat. You know? And at first you're not going to know how to live in the light because you've lived in darkness for so long. But I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to, the rest of your life will be tied together. Uh, will be linked in ways that are much deeper than you realize. And over the whole course of your life, I'll go throughout the black box and we'll, let, we'll have this dialogue with people and we'll offer them the same thing. And, and one day you'll, you'll die and uh, whatever and it's all going to be fine and good. And um, one day God's going to flip the lights on and all the people with white coats are going to be okay and live with him forever in a new box. And... Uh, all the people with black coats are going to be put to death. 
And so you kind of think about it for a second, and your initial thing is like, this sounds too good to be true, but uh, I'm okay with it. And it kind of dawns on you for a second. You're like, wait a minute. If you have on my black coat and I have on your white coat, that means when God flips the lights on, I'm okay, but what happens to you? And Jesus kind of, maybe he just kind of grins a little bit. And, and then you, you kind of step back a little bit. You're like, wait a second. And if we're going to walk around, we're going to offer this to everyone, I'm assuming that you have a bunch of white coats to give out, but you're just going to keep piling on black coats, right? So you're going to have like bazillions of black coats piled on you, right? You're like, yeah. And so... When God flips on the lights, is it going to be like one quick destruction for you? And Jesus is like, no, it's going to be per coat. <laughs> you know? But that's for me to deal with. That's for me to endure. That's for me to obey. That's, if I didn't want to make you this offer, I wouldn't be here. And so you surrender your life, you surrender that coat and your whole identity, and you hand it over to him, and he puts his white coat on you, and he takes the black coat. And so it, what it means to be accounted righteous is, is it's, like, it's that kind of exchange. So when God flips on the lights, he looks at you as one of his and sees the righteousness of Christ robed and draped over you. Saying there's no wrath coming to you because the wrath has already been put on Jesus and poured out on him and he has taken it all. So for many to be accounted righteous means just that. That there are many white robes walking around that were unearned, that were gifts from Jesus to his enemy children. And he took coat after coat after coat after coat to the cross. And it was the will of the Father to crush him. It was the will of Yahweh, Father, Son, and Spirit, together said, yes, this is the plan. This is what redemption will look like. This will bring glory to the name of Yahweh for eternity. And so for many to be accounted righteous, that's, that's what it is. And so for you and I to be here and to live in that kind of exchange has got to make a difference in the way that we live our lives and think about our sin. We don't want to be, to go back to Jesus having the meal with people, we don't want to be those know-it-alls sitting around the table who love little because they have a, a, very, a very limited understanding of the depths of their sin. We want to understand that in a room full of people who are wearing black coats, it doesn't really matter if you what you have done to earn one. You have one. We have one. And the penalty for that is the death of God himself. So when we sing songs about Christ, we sing songs about the cross, and we have uh, a week of, of watching him walk toward uh, Calvary like this, it should be intense. It should be deep. It should be Awkward. It should be painful for us. And even though we know we know what Sunday brings, and we should celebrate that, Sunday is tied to Friday. And I've said that this each week. They're like two chunks of concrete tied to each other. The, the more depth that one brings, it drags the other one deeper. 
That's what we need. I think God is forming this in us. I, I believe that this is what He's doing. And so I hope that, not just tonight, but that this entire week is one where we're walking through with maturity. We're realizing the heaviness of Holy Week. The awfulness of Friday. And the beauty of Sunday. That we come in here next week ready to celebrate the fact that it is done. But we don't look the other way heading into Friday. Because it's tied to the goodness of Sunday. So we're going to sing a little bit because that's kind of how we do things. And the reason we sing afterwards is a way of just responding and processing together. And so these are corporate prayers and uh, reactions to the goodness of Jesus. And so we're just going to lift him high and uh, sing to him out of reaction to this. So let's, let's stand together as the band comes back up. Lord Jesus, just to chase the story a little bit, for those who are in Christ and are robed in righteousness, we're a bunch of people in white coats standing up, responding to the light that we have seen and the offer that's on the table from you as our Lord. Offering to become sin for us so that we may become the righteousness of God. We may literally become robed and covered in the righteousness of Jesus. With no wrath, no penalty, no more to come. That when you flip on the lights, there is only goodness and healing and forgiveness and an eternity of beauty ahead of us. And so for those who are here and who are in Christ, I pray that songs would come from that perspective as we respond in these last few moments together. And for those who aren't sure, just ask you, just in all humility, just beg you to be clear and gentle and kind with the same offer. That same exchange is offered. To remove sin and to replace it with your righteousness and goodness. And for those who are uncertain, I pray, Lord, that maybe this time of song would be a time of dialogue with you. That same thing I described. You don't have to be led in a prayer. You don't have to worry about saying the right things or whatever. It's just pure and good and led by you. We thank you for the offer on the table and it's the beauty of our Savior.